everyone, welcome back to the Earthon Survival Guide, the podcast for all disciplines, paths, players, and game masters, with your questers Josh and Dan. With me tonight is Josh. Hello, everyone. And Lou. Hey, everyone. How are you? And on today's podcast, we'll be discussing all things prosperical, because we're going to talk to Lou for the next hour, two hours, whatever we got, whatever we can steal uh, Lou's time from, and go from there. You've already answered my first question, which was, I wonder what the ill, ickle word will be. As much as I can pull out of some orifice. So the first edition line developer, the fourth edition original line developer, and some schmuck who happened to stumble into this conversation, that would be me. So welcome, Lou. Thank you. Thanks for having me. As I hope some of your listeners know, I've been listening from the beginning, and I try to engage the online community, at least on Facebook, with comments and feedback about each episode but most everyone not a lot of people respond to it but i don't care i'm still gonna share there actually were a couple of comments in the emails we got that people who have seen that and do appreciate it even if there isn't a whole lot of yes response they do like the insights into the original ideas and right memories of days gone by and all that sort of thing oh no they do appreciate it i just don't feel like i need to comment because i'm already doing the show in the first place i read your comments i like them (laughs) my ego just wants to do hands off and let everybody else enjoy your feedback but that's me but i'm already sucking up to everybody in the first place repping the first edition logo on my shirt so (laughs) anyway i've done all my sucking up to to lou right now (laughs) so we had an idea for where to start the show one of the emails we got Starts off this way. I started playing Earth Dawn in the 1990s before the internet had videos or podcasts, so we had to guess how to pronounce certain Earth Dawn words on our own. I have heard how Josh and Dan pronounce many of these, but I am curious how Lou pronounces the following words. Josh has some flashcards, so we can all just kind of play along. I will apologize to those people who are watching the video because it's going to appear in reverse there on YouTube, but Lou will be able to read it appropriately and we'll go from there. So apologies there. I couldn't figure out how to get that to work properly when I realized it was going to be an issue. So here is the first one. Alachia. Oh, okay. Ah, I always said Alachia, but that was just me. I always did Alachia with a hard. Right. Yep. Alachia. Hmm, okay. Like school. You know, S-C-H. I will say that some of my pronunciation I believe comes from discussions with Christopher Kubasik, the gentleman who created a lot of these, a lot of the names, some, and discussions in the office with Sam Lewis when he was net editing the novels and et cetera. We had to talk about people. That doesn't make it right necessarily, but that's how I always pronounce things. Well, if they were the creators and gave you the names, then I would say that's probably better than the rest of us are, are doing. Yeah, and that's not gonna change how I pronounce it because I've been doing it a certain way for thirty years. So. Right, right, right. Well, just the other day when you were doing your um, episode about the second Rennell, virtually whenever you guys say the name, I listen while I go for a walk and I end up saying the name my way whenever you say it, or at least in my head I do. So <laughs> That's fine. All right. <laughs> Moving on to the second one. Corollis. Okay. That's. Yeah. I, I, right? I, my, my brother always said Corollis as well. So, okay. Then we're going to move on then to number three. No discussion. We all agree. There's no discussion involved. Right, right. right. Yeah, yeah. Florannuous. Okay. We, I remember we had this discussion when we 
did the episode talking about him. Yes. The W as opposed to a W. The double U. <laughs> I will say that <laughs> the two U's. I'm not sure I've ever spoken that word before, but that's how I would have pronounced it had I done it. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. 30 years, you finally said the word for the first time. I can accept that one. Here we go. Next one. Low coast. Okay. I had done that with a slightly different O pronunciation on that. Usually. Yeah, I did low cost. Yeah. And part of it is for these last several was that, as you know, the passions didn't play a big role in much of the first edition content. We didn't do much with them. And so that's part of why that is. Oh, I'm sure this one's going to be a hot button. Oh, winner. Nethermancer. Netherman. Okay. Good. Duh. I am I am redeemed. It's like the Nether Realm yes. or the Nether, the nether Worlds. Or, yes. Yeah. Exactly. Netherlands. Nethermancer. Moving on to the next one. And these are actually alphabetical, so that's why they're in the order that they are. Oh, gotcha. Upondle. Upondle. Okay. A U, like the actual long U. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. And I can see that. Let's first 20 years until I started hosting this with Josh, we always called it up and doll. And I'm like, that's, I did not can't anywhere be right. <laughs> so this next one, here we go. <laughs> Vestengis. Vestengis. Okay. I remember we got an email from somebody who said he worked on this. One, that would be Fraser Kane. Yeah. Fraser. That's I was trying to remember who that was. Yeah. He was a colleague of Nigel Finley's. Oh, Nigel. Oh, Nigel had a, like a writing group that he mentored a number of young writers, uh, new writers. Among them was Fraser Kane. Uh, Nicole Lindrus is also was part of that group way back in the day. Fraser wrote Creatures of Barzay, which is where Vestengis made his debut. Okay, gotcha. Because it was in Vestengis. Yeah, no, Vestengis. I like that. That's good. This one, I think, is pretty straightforward, but here's the next one. Vestrovin. Vestrovin, okay. No surprise there. And I think this one is just thrown in here for fun. I imagine they're alphabetical. You can probably guess who it is. Yeah, Yisrith Graith. I'm not sure about that one, but that's probably as close as I'd get to it. Okay. Again, that name just looks like it was somebody's cat ran across the keyboard and they went with it. That's uh, the creation of Carolyn Specter. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, Yisrith Graith always made sense to me. Just one of those things. But some other pronunciations that I think I tend to start emphasizing the first syllable of multiple. I always call it par length instead of par length. Like I know, Dan, you refer to it as par length. It's always par length, bar save. Basically, the first syllable tends to get emphasis for me. I don't know if that's being from New England or I'm not sure where that would come from, but it's how I tend to uh, pronounce a lot of words. I think mine, I just alternated. I did some other proper names may come up in the course of our discussion. Um, so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I think I do bar save and then par length. So I, I alternate the two of them for absolutely no good reason other than variety. That list was provided to us by K. Scott Rowe, a frequent contributor to the email bag. Cool. Thank you, Scott. He's got a couple of other questions that I'm sure we'll be getting to at some point. But thank you, Lou, for playing along with that game. Sure. Totally, totally. So authoritative to some degree. Take that what you will. So to continue on with the rest of these random, random questions, I took everybody's name off the emails because I figured that was going to take like too much time to thank everybody for their emails. So thank you, everyone. You know who you are. You know the questions that you sent in. There were only a couple of duplicates, oddly enough. I found that really strange. We brought up earlier in our pre-discussion, Case Scott Rose asked the same thing. What were the plans, if any, 
to continue any coordination with Shadowrun and Earth Dawn. Interesting place to start. It wouldn't have been much different than it was during, say, the last two years of Earth Dawn First Edition, where there were mostly Easter eggs and vague references. Now, obviously, Shadowrun picked up some storylines that dealt more with the horrors around that time, following Super Tuesday and the Dragonheart Saga. You know, it's funny, Mike Mulvihill and I used to argue about who was in the worst position with that. He was like, I have to, you know, deal with whatever you leave behind. I'm like, I can't kill any of my characters that you've already talked about. <laughs> so we've had these discussions as well. Right. Exactly. What are we going to do about it? But it probably would have stayed the same. There might have been a few more references here and there to say Aaron the Scribe and or Harlequin or some of the big names from Shadowrun. On my side, at least, there was only so much I could do. I was doing my thing and it's up to... The bigger factor, I think, would be the on the Shadowrun side, do they make those references as well? You know, we had decided, for instance, that Lothweir wasn't going to be a factor in Earth Dawn, at least in Barsafe. I think he might be in Vesgothia, right? It's possible that there is a veiled reference to him in Vesgothia, but he is not actually named at all. Yeah, we had kind of come up with some parallels, right? So Harlequin shows up, I think, as a courtier in the Bloodwood. There's a vague reference to him somewhere there. The same thing with Aaron the Scribe. Aaron, I hadn't picked up on. Harlequin is in the Bloodwood book as an envoy from Sariatha. Right. Goes by the name that he is known by in Worlds Without End, Kaimbul. Right, right. Kaimbul, yeah. right. Shows up under that name, but. I had always wondered whether Aaron actually showed up. That's that's one that I think has flown under a lot of people's radar. I think he's in the Bloodwood somewhere, but I can't remember off the top of my head. And I haven't read it all recently. I don't know how much of a how good an answer that is, but you know, we had never talked about any direct core crossover kind of stuff. Yeah. Here's an interesting, I think interesting tidbit. I started playing Shadowrun when it first came out. I picked it up at the Gen Con that it released, and I brought it and introduced it to my group, and we played it. And in one adventure, I had them go into the lair of a dragon or something, and they went through a time travel portal, and they ended up in the past, in a past medieval setting. This is before I knew Earthdawn existed. I don't even think they had thought about doing the game yet. I just thought it would be a kind of a cool thing, because right from the beginning, Shadowrun had said magic returned. Mm -hmm. so there had to be a time when magic was there before so i made up this little weird sort of like a time tra a time travel ward that they walked through and they found themselves in an ancient civilization and then they did a thing and then they came back to 2050 nice. little did i know a few years later i'd be working on a game that was based on that same kind of idea i don't know this is actually one of the questions but that's a good lead-in to <laughs> you've probably told this in other places but how did you get to Earth Dawn, how did you end up working at Faza? Working on that game and being brought on with that. Yeah. Okay. So I started my gaming career working as a playtester and minor contributor to DC Heroes, published by Mayfair Games, mm -hmm. which was designed by Greg Gordon. Yeah. And so I got to know Greg. And then uh, while I was at Mayfair, I also helped on Chill Second Edition. That really doesn't play into this story too much, but my bona fides, I guess. And then Greg moved on to West End Games. He designed Torg, and I got involved as a playtester early on for Torg. 
And then that was where I did my first writing. The first professional paid writing I did was a couple of short adventures in a book called Full Moon Draw, which was a collection of six short adventures, one in each of the six cosms of Torque. I don't know how familiar you guys are with Torque. I am. I've got it on the shelf back there. Right. In fact, I wrote the first one. I wrote a living land adventure. And then one of the other authors bailed on the uh, Arorsh adventure. So I got to write two for that one. So that was kind of cool. And then I did some other playtesting. I wrote some spells. I, I wrote the Storm Knight's Guide to the Possibility Wars. So I had a relationship with Greg. He went to work on Earthdawn. And so I became a playtester for Earthdawn. I think we playtested maybe the summer of 92 is what I'm thinking. So just before I got the job. And then along the way, I had submitted a proposal to Tom Dowd to write an adventure for Shadowrun. I wrote an adventure called The Killing Glare or A Killing Glare. Okay. A killing, a killing glare, right? And that's kind of funny. It was that came from a friend of mine from a gaming group. He came up with this idea for this pair of Shadowrunner people called Punch and Judy, and he thought it'd be cool. And could we do something? I have an idea, but it's half baked. And finally, we figured out how to make it work. And so I pitched it, and I was writing that. I was in the middle of sort of working on that. And I guess what happened is they started looking for a developer for the game, and they interviewed a couple people, and then one of them said, "Hey, what about Lou?" And I don't know if it was Greg or if it's Tom, or I'm not sure exactly. Tom told me the story, and I don't remember who he said. I think it was, I called Tom to talk about a killing glare, or he called me, I, I don't remember exactly. He said, by the way, we have this new game. Would you be interested in, in maybe, you know, joining us? I said, well, yeah, I'd love the chance. So uh, they flew me out for an interview, and I met with Sam Lewis, who was the president at the time, and then I met with Tom and, and Mort Weissman who was the CEO and owner. And uh, Sam liked me enough to give me the job. That's kind of how I came into it. So I credit my relationship with Greg because I playtested a number of things with him and he sort of followed him. He you know, worked on DC Heroes, then he worked on Torg, and I worked on Torg, then he worked on Earthon, and I worked on Earthon. I kind of credited um, my relationship with Greg. It's all in who you know sometimes. Look, it is a small industry. Yes. That's how I got to be on the podcast with Josh. Well, and the truth is, sometimes you just have to ask, right? Yes. You could have done the podcast by yourself, but all you have to do is you reach out to, hey, how'd you like to do a podcast with me? And lo and behold, he says yes. Well, that's exactly what I did. <laughs> yeah. I took the John Madden principle because when he was first asked to do TV broadcasting, he's like, I better say yes now because I may never ask me again. <laughs> so always say yes first because they may not, may not ask you a second time. I had to go along with that. So- since we're on this right now, I'm going to, I'm going to do my question first. Cause I, I thought of one just before I, I signed on tonight, which is who had, or how did this come about the creative process in other interviews? You've said, well, earth is just D and D done, right? They're well explained in that case. So what was the process like building the setting from the ground up? Literally did cares come uh, first as the post post apocalypse? They need to explain the apocalypse. You had to explain the cares, or was it backwards? Like you wanted to build a fantasy game and use the two things that D and D did well, dungeons and dragons, and re-explain them better. So fill us all in on on that process. So a lot of that happened before I got involved. Fair. Exactly how it all began, I'm not sure. But at one point, Jordan Weissman, who was still at the time involved in FASA decided he wanted to do a fantasy game that was set in the historical past of, of Earthdawn. And if you know, if you go out and search, you can find old flyers that talk about the Atlanteans. That was what they used to call the Therans. 
if you find right find some of those old um some of the early early shadow on flyers it talks about aaron the scribe talking about the cycle of magic wow yeah that's a good that's good stuff those are the ads in dragon magazine yeah mm-hmm. for those of you just on the podcast dan is holding up a series of pictures of early early promotional materials that were done for earth Dawn. so at one point they decided to do this this game and i did have at one point some old old notes from chris and greg's early meetings and they basically build up lists of things that are cool in D&D that we should emulate. And one of them was polyhedral dice. We should use all the dice. Yeah. I got to believe one was dungeons. Your arm was probably dragons. But then exactly where this magical apocalypse came from, I'm not really sure. But it certainly answered a lot of the questions for why things were, would be the way they were. You know, so it's setting the game, you know, just after the scourge helped because it was... Um, a heroic time, a time, you know, the whole Dawn thing was played into the, the name. Yeah. It was reclaiming the world from the horrors. So I have to believe that part of their brainstorming and thought process was, why would these be, be these underground, vast underground things? Well, maybe they're shelters and that's where people live. So I don't know 100%, but I, I think it was a way to answer some of the questions about why D&D was the way it was. Why in fantasy games there are these underground places with monsters and treasures and traps. Yeah, because otherwise it doesn't make any sense. And so I was just curious if that's... Take this this trope or the setting that we've all heard about before and in our game, make it make sense and write it all in there and put a story behind every aspect of it. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the One of the things Christopher used to talk about he would say one of the odd things about fantasy games and, and Earthon was not an exception to this was what happens to the local economy when a bunch of adventurers go into a cave and come back later with a million gold pieces and they bring it into the, you know, like when a big influx of cash can just happen randomly because they happen to knock down the right door. That's kind of a, it could do some wonky things to um, the economy of the local area, but we never think about it. We don't ever delve into that stuff. Right. We just, and wave it aside and whatever it's all good it's the fantasy game version of hookers and blow <laughs> this is not an economics simulator if you think about it too hard it all falls apart right exactly yeah yeah don't get don't get lost in the minutiae folks right. just don't promise you it's not gonna work for you okay i think that takes care of at least the first page i had down here actually it's not i'm gonna work backwards another emailer sent in the lore of earth dawn is riddled with lots of secrets and mysteries among all the unanswered questions that were left in the first edition, like what's going on in the Lahala Certus, or what's the true origin of Queen Alachia, is she a former queen or a new persona? Were there some questions that the team at Fossa first edition had the answers to, but never had the chance to reveal them or chose not to? And this emailer would like spoilers. <laughs> Unless, of course, the current team at Fossa has plans for those. Right. Well, I will just preface this by saying there may be some things that he says that I knew about ahead of time and may work in in the future, but can't confirm. Go ahead, Lou. (laughs) Uh, Spoil away. Let's see. So I'm going to tell a story about a product that I wanted to do that I was over. I was voted down on Mm. because it's going to set the stage in context for the rest of my answer to this. Fair. At one point, I thought a cool product, and I've told this story at some point, a couple other times, I think, was a map set. 
a set of maps that basically took the bar save map from the campaign set and zoomed into different areas of it and provided lots more detail. Here's more rivers, here's cities and village, you know, just names of stuff. Be a cool project. Yeah. It didn't happen for a couple of reasons. One is, as simple as that sounds, it's a very expensive project because more full color art, even if it was only eight posters, that's a lot of artwork. Yeah. And cartography is not cheap. Right. And it has to be done well. Like, so, you know, we'd have to do it all right, well enough to provide it to an artist who could render it well and blah, blah, blah. But it got voted down mostly because Tom Dowd didn't think it was a good idea. And he thought at the time, and I disagreed at the time, I've come to see the wisdom in his thinking, was that we would be tying down future development. Because if we put, you know, like the story that you tell, Josh, about you putting a, a settlement in one place, and then we published a book, and you found out that right where you put your settlement was a city that is now published, and the rest of the world thinks, you know, is going to think of it. When they see that spot on the map, they're going to think it's Daesh instead of whatever you did. I just made up, picked a name, right? Yeah. So he felt that that would be limiting future authors because they couldn't create their own city in that particular confluence of three rivers. They'd have to use the one we made up on a whim. And we wouldn't have done it really thinking about future stories. We were just going to do it to have cities and towns and villages and just stuff, right? It wasn't part of a master plan that I had. It was just, let's give them more places to explore. As I said, I've kind of come to agree and, and more strongly believe in Tom's point, because the way I think about world building is you want to provide as much detail as you have to, as much as you can, but as little as you have to. You don't want to go too far too early because you may hamstring yourself later. And so all of this to say, I don't know what the story with Shivalahala service was right? We didn't plot out the answers to many of the mysteries that were there until we had to. Mm -hmm. One example is the Denerastus, right? They were a cool, powerful magic family of magicians in the northwest corner of Barsave. And if you read the early stuff, like in the Earth on Rule book and the Barsave campaign set, they're just this powerful family of magicians who rule with an iron fist. Kind of a stereotypical fantasy trope. Right. It wasn't until at some point, and I don't recall the specifics of how this came about. You know, I think I was probably thinking, why are they special and cool? Are they just cool magicians or why? And that's somehow we came across this idea that they were the progeny of a great dragon. Ooh, and maybe they're the progeny of a great dragon that didn't get along with the other great dragons. And so that all kind of spun out. But, you know, there was no note from Chris Kubasik back in the day that said, by the way, they're all the children of a dragon. They were just a powerful, magical family. And so... By not you know, working out all the details of their origin, it gave us the freedom to do something which has turned out to be pretty cool because it was this, le- this mystery that was left for us to develop further. So a lot of them, we didn't really plot it all out. And, you know, in three years, we'll finally reveal the next big thing. You know, we didn't have it worked out to that level of detail. I hope that's not a disappointing answer. Um, no, I, it sounds like. All the great comic books of the 60s and 70s, finally they took like one little throwaway line or one little throwaway panel and reworked it 20 years later and said, now we can use this because somebody had the idea to use that. Right. I think that works just fine. There's lots of mysteries that we didn't really work out the details. I will say that in my view, Alechia is one of the oldest living beings 
in bar save. Mm-hmm. There's a few scaly guys. We're probably a little older than her, but aside from that, she's definitely one of the oldest ones. I don't remember if we talked about any other second worlders, but she's been around a long time. So here's a question. In your mind, was she Kanereth? I think so. Okay. That's good enough for me. More firmly, she was Liara, I'm pretty sure. Kanereth was the first, she was the the one in the legend, the, the first speaker, the one like way back in the ancient forgotten times. Right. No. So I don't think she was, she's that. She's definitely, at least I believe Liara. And Phala might have been somebody else, but she's the queen and she disappears for a little while. She comes back with a new name and is the queen again. We could get into a whole discussion about whether Alicia or Alakia, however you want to pronounce it, is really her name. And how does naming work with these people and creatures that are thousands and thousands of years old? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's podcast 300, though. We got, we got, <laughs> we've got time, right? <laughs> you know, and it's, not, it's funny because whenever that comes up, I think about it. I'm like, I wonder why no one's asked about how, she, how did she change her name and still be powerful, and etc. And so neither of those might be her true name. There may be some other name that only certain people and creatures know. It would make sense because dragons likewise have multiple names that they are known by. Right. And so sort of, I imagine that her royal fussiness would be aware of that same type of magic to be able to take advantage of that. Right. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Uncle Mountain Shadow told me how to do it. Right. So. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I have a fun toss away question. Lou has answered this before. But if you don't mind him asking again, is the Drake Rosper a play on your last name, as in dropping the first letter and the last letter? Wow, I don't think so, but it might be. (laughs) I don't remember. (laughs) I don't think so. Fair. But I'm pretty sure I didn't write the first appearance of him, so it could be whoever wrote it did it. That's an homage. But I didn't do it on purpose. That's fine. We writers, we like tossing in whimsical stuff to amuse ourselves when we're working on things. Right. Yes. Oh, yeah. All the time. All the time. Got to do that. How about some off-the-wall, weird, weird questions? We're going to go deep into the recesses of Lou's brain here. This emailer sent us in a good dozen and a half, so forgive the litany of weird questions you're going to get. The laser beam cannon towers in Vivane were there hidden plainly in our face from the first promo flyer. How did the idea about them evolve through the years of development of the game? Did you know it from day one, or did it just come up under the development of the Vivane box set or the Bar Save at War notes? They seem very Star Wars-ish. Um, or is he smoking something the rest of us uh, need to get our hands on? The fact that they may have appeared in that very early picture of Skypoint in those flyers is complete happenstance and coincidence. I don't even think we had thought about them in terms of weapons, if you will, in the Vivane box set. It wasn't until we wanted a cool fight at Skypoint that I thought about that. We just wanted to amp up everything in that battle of Skypoint. And I know some people think I probably took things a little bit too far with the magic battery and the whole thing, but I think it would have been cool. And maybe it was in the way it played out. I don't know if that happened in the way it's played out now. You know, in the history of fourth edition, I don't know if it makes reference to any of the details of the battle at that level. Not specifically. That is something that is in the back of my brain as something that happened. But 
also needed to keep in mind that that history is being presented within setting. Right. And so the people in that setting may not know what actually happened. That's why that history doesn't refer to Ardelia's story at all, right. because it's not something that in the grand scope of clashes of nations, it is to player characters and people who are involved in that a very important story. And it is very important to the dragons. But in terms of what a historian in Thrall right. would be interested in, oh, right, it's not something that's important. An observer or a scholar writing about it years later, days later, whenever, wouldn't necessarily have any insight into the, whether or not a bunch of magicians in Thera actually worked a ritual to send a big pulse of magic to Vyvane to help them fight their fight. Or if that even happened or how it worked, you know? Because it doesn't matter. All they know is, well, we thought there were spotlights, but then they started cutting holes through the ships. That's all we know. Exactly. Oh, it's not a moon, it's a space station. <laughs> So this alien tech, next question, is a secret that the Therans have. He guesses Thera Island is another even more heavily armed stronghold. And what can we find in the lost city capital of Parlanth? Another locus because more beam cannons or something even more sinister since it was the capital. That's kind of like a whole bunch of rolled into one. My head cannon was always that Parlanth probably had a locus. So the locus thing didn't really exist when Parlanth, when the Parlanth story was done. The mechanism by which the Therans force the magic to stay around, I don't think we'd thought it through. We just knew they did it somehow, right? Yeah. And so at one point we sort of came up with this idea that, you know, maybe it's the ley lines or maybe the locust created the ley lines or wh whatever, however, chicken and egg kind of thing. Yeah. But once we sort of had this idea... I thought that Parlanth probably had one when it disappeared and it probably got corrupted along with a lot of the rest of the city. Likewise, my sort of belief was that that's what caused the wastes to be what they are. Nice. That has not actually been contradicted. Right. But at the same time, I definitely appreciate your, your stance, which will let that mystery be something the game master figures out for himself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Unless something comes up that forces you to change your stance on it, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, how many there were and where they were, we left it vague because we didn't need to answer the question. Again, going back to this whole as much as you have to, but as little as possible. Right? Yes. We know they exist. There was clearly one under Vivane. There was probably one in par length. It's probably one in the wood. And exactly how close they had to be, how far apart they were, what arrangement they were in. We never worked out any of the details. There was there was never a map that showed where they might be. It was all driven by narrative concerns. Maybe to be used later, probably not. Who knew? Just leave a couple of dangling threads. And I think to the core of the question, I don't think that there's a magical doomsday device sitting in a cavern underneath Parlanth. Fair. Unless the Game Master wants there to be for his campaign. Yeah, I was just going to say that. The way I used to think about it and look at it was... We were telling the story of Barsave, and we were doing it by sort of focusing a lens on a certain part of the setting. So we start with the big picture, then we zoom in on Parlane, then we zoom out, we zoom in on Skypoint Vivane, and then we zoom in on Thrall. And, and we got to the point where, particularly after Prelude to War, the products we produced had to fit into the overall narrative that the big, as we were telling the story of Barsave in this world, that would dictate some of the products that we would publish. That's why we never did a quester 
or passions book because it never played into any of the stories that we were getting to. Now it might, we might've gotten to it at some point, but I think I may have had a note somewhere about passion war or something like that, where they would get into it. But I also kind of, I liked the fact that earth didn't have clerics in the same sense and didn't, wasn't wrapped up in the whole religion thing Yeah, that the questers were there and people believed them in the passions and all that. But it really was just a cultural thing, and it wasn't such a big, prominent part of the setting. Yeah, I can appreciate that. That makes sense. I think there's a, a general sense, and having known you for quite a number of years, Lou, and talked about many of these similar things, there is this sense that exists in the fan base that there was this sort of grand architect plan that was all kind of laid out when really... There was a lot of, I have this idea, oh, neat, it hooks on here, and kind of expanding the fuzzy edges of what had been there before. And that gives a sense, or that can give a sense of a lot more forethought than actually existed. Yeah, yeah. Where you're tying into a reference and things like that. Yeah, we, I don't want to take credit for it, we were lucky that we were able to come up with ideas that we could toss in that sat there and we got to use them later. Like the ever-living flower. When I got the job, I reached out to some friends of mine who were freelancers and such. And those were the first people I contacted about writing for Earthon. And John Terra ended up writing Bloodwood. And originally, they delivered some plant or something. It was not the ever-living flower. Mm-hmm. And in development, we decided, how about if it's a cool artifact of some sort, some cool main ancient elven thing? So we made up this thing, and we just sort of left it there, and then we put the legend in the Barsia campaign set. We're going to come back to this someday. I don't know what the hell it's going to do, or why, or what's important about it, but it's there now. We were able to sort of drop these things in various products, and then pick them up later. And it, like you said, Josh, it does sort of convey, or it it implies this master plan, when really... I just happened to have a memory that I remember all these things, you know, like, oh, I did this thing in this one time. Oh, and I did this, you know, I could tie this in here. And so that's a lot of how what happened in Prelude to War came about and even some of the Bar Saver War, you know, and we, and we would plan about a year and a half out. So we knew something was coming so we could lay some seeds for it, but it wasn't quite as uh, mapped out as seems like it might have been. Mm-hmm. It's very rewarding to hear that people think that because we did a good job at the way we put it all together. But um, yeah, for, fortunately, I have a pretty good memory in terms of all these little weird tidbits like, ooh, this will fit here. And I think that's how the Dragon Denarastis thing came about. I just I wish I could remember where that came from, because that's such a, to me, that's just one of the coolest little things we, we did in the game was that the, in this whole outcast thing, and it gave us this voice for the Dragon's book, and it just really solved a lot of problems you know mm -hmm. oh no doubt no doubt so uh follow-up question was there a plan for an underdark beyond par length no most of the people listening here probably have read my notes by now the, my bar save at war and earth on 1999 it's so funny to think about that that's when it was going to be um <clears throat> the only other thing like that would have been a product called vivane city of the dead so I've talked about the whole vampire thing before. I'm pretty sure you're familiar with my faux pas, right? Which was... Yeah, I've mentioned it on the show. We've talked about vampires. We've had questions about it. Right. So 
for those of you who aren't familiar, the Earth on Companion has we tried to explore a little bit more about some of the concepts about thread magic, et cetera. And so there was an example, and I think it came from Greg. In the role I was, I mean, if I had developed the rule book two years later with two more years experience, it would have come out a lot different than it did. I know that feeling. But I had a certain level of insecurity about like, I don't know if I should change this. I don't know if I'm making it. I don't know if I'm doing this right. Or, you know, there was a lot of imposter syndrome going on when I was there. And so there was this example of a, of a vampire and a clove of garlic as a pattern item, which when you think about it, it's kind of weird because cloves of garlic are ephemeral, mm-hmm. right? So most pattern items are not so ephemeral, right? Yeah. The bigger issue was inadvertently, we suggested that vampires exist in Earth Dawn. And my feeling is and was that in a world where blood magic is so powerful and such a thing, vampires would be special. It wouldn't be a throwaway thing. Yeah. What I had thought to do with Vivane after the um, the horror cloud explosion, which I assume that takes place in fourth edition, right? Yes. The horror cloud goes and kaboom, right? Yep. So between the horror cloud and the corrupted locust that was underneath the city, probably Vivane becomes this city of the dead and it'll would give us give us a product where we could explore undead and earth on in a whole new way like we had tossed them out here and there those cadaver men and here's ghouls and here's zombies well not zombies but it would provide an opportunity for us to really treat the subject a little bit more holistically and really explore what it's like maybe introduce vampires and you know i I know some people felt that that might just be doing parlate version two but i think it would have been different enough and then we did have this idea for Twice Born and her army to sort of maybe migrate across the city, maybe migrate across Barsave and join the City of the Dead. But beyond that, no, there were no other plans for, uh, you know, if anyone's read those documents, that's as far as we got in terms of product planning. Yeah. I don't know if it'll come up in other questions, but while we're here, so we were talking about Barsave at War and then Vivane City of the Dead. The other book was Pawns of the Dragon, which is largely what um, fourth edition has done with Iopus and Empty Thrones. I mean, I think the story might be a little different, but it was a book set in Iopus with the focus of not only the Denerastus in the city, but what other pawns does he have? So mm-hmm. we kind of toyed with the idea that the Descrang house that's in that the northern reach of the city, of the northern reach of Barsave might be aligned with them, and that there's a windling village, I think, up there, and that he might have had other pawns whether they had whether they were dragonkin his children or not is a whole other story we never got thinking about that but this idea was that clearly the denarestus of the next big thing that killed varilorus they framed thera <laughs> you know they're setting up there and to fight each other they're the next bad guy so let's do a book about them so that was going to be that and then the last one that we had toyed with was githia the uh, the dwarven kingdom the mountains between Parlanth and the Bloodwood. Right, which is, and the idea there was with Naden dead, this Thorlick Civil War kind of would happen, and this conflict would happen, and then a bunch of them would just go and leave and re- and resettle Scythia and born that, so it would give us a chance to do a whole other Dwarven city, and maybe things weren't so shiny and happy there, and, you know, we didn't get very far in the development of that, but those are some of the ideas we had for, for that at that point in time. That was what Fair. 99, 1999 was shaping up to be before that inflated meeting in June when I was told I was not going to work there anymore. <laughs> I, 
think we've all had a couple of those meetings in our lifetime, and I have more than my fair share as well. Enough said. This ends part one of our interview with Lou. Two more parts to go. We hope you're enjoying this. I know just when things started to get good, we have to stop it here and make you wait for part two. 